0: Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere so you too can have No Vacancies. If that sounds good to you. Let's get right into the show. Do you want to know the number one most common message I receive from listeners of this show? It's always something like this. "Hey Natalie, so I'm fully bought in on wanting to start or grow my short-term rental business, but I just don't know where to invest. How do I know if the property or market I'm looking at will be a good investment?" Does that sound like you? You've been listening to all of the podcasts and reading all of the books on how to manage your place, but none of this education is going to mean anything if you don't first find the right property. This is why I am so excited to share with you that the team at STR Insights has launched a new service where they will help you find an investment property that meets your goals. Whether you're looking for cash flow, cash on cash return, or long-term appreciation, STR Insights will first help you define your goals and then identify the market and property that is right for you. The team is made up of STR investors and operators themselves, so they know what to look for in terms of a good market and property, and will make sure that you can legally operate in the areas that they point you to. Right now, STR Insights is offering listeners of No Vacancy a free call to help first-time or seasoned investors find the next deal that will help you meet your goals. Just click the link in the show notes of this episode to book your call, and if you want to learn more, go back to episode 68 and check out my discussion with the STR Insights CEO, Kenny Bedwell. Like I said, they have a 100% success rate, so you have nothing to lose by scheduling your free call and getting you one step closer to finding that perfect deal. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I have on my friend Zoe Berghoff, who is returning to the show for a second time. You guys may remember her way back from episode 13. She was one of the first guests we ever had on the show to talk about unique stays, glamping, yurts, all of those good, all those, all those fun, unique things. And you guys know that I'm So interested in the Unique Stay space right now and just obsessed with how much potential there is in this realm. But today's episode, we're going to focus more on land hacking because this is something that Zoe is one of the few people I see talking about. And I think that there's so much potential to be making multiple streams of income off of one piece of land. So if you want all the nitty gritty of Unique Stays, go back to episode 13. But for now, Zoe, welcome back to the show. Do you want to reintroduce yourself for anyone who doesn't remember who you are? And also, I know you've had a ton of updates and changes since you were last on the show. I think it's been like a full year. So bring us up to speed with what's new, and then we'll dive into the land hacking.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be back on. To give a little introduction to myself, if any of you guys are new, my name is Zoe Berghoff. I am in the short-term rental space, along with Natalie. But we really prioritize and build our portfolio to unique stays. So think glamping, land hacking, which we'll dive into on this and explain what that looks like. We're also, our current project is a 1940s historic home being completely stripped down and brought back up into a modern cabin to really bring that unique stay approach because you can't really get 1940s homes anymore. So we've done anything from building extreme renovation, demolition, glamping and everything is from the ground up. So we don't really buy turnkey properties, which in the short-term rental space, this is where we're seeing the industry go. This is where we're seeing experiences really cultivate and where guests want to go. So that's where we've built our portfolio. This pros and cons to building from the ground up, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But we've seen extreme profit and returns in that space. So we continue to go in that direction. This is one of my favorite things about you. I remember we did a
0: podcast together with John, and one of the Mm -hmm. questions was, when people get mad at you for contributing to the housing crisis, and that's a whole Mm -hmm. other conversation we could have. But I loved Zoe's answer was just like, well, I've literally built every single property that we do, so don't come at me with that. And I was like, yeah, okay, respect. I like (laughs) it. So yeah, I love, I think that you're doing something very unique here. Instead of just buying like cookie cutter, truck homes that are out and about, you really are dedicated to this, literally building everything from the ground up. Even this one property that you guys are working on mm-hmm. now that was technically pre-built, you're stripping it down and basically redoing it from scratch. So I love your approach to this. Let's get into land hacking. I think that this mm-hmm. is one of the coolest things that again, not a lot of people are talking about, but at least like in California, for sure. And I know you're based mostly in Colorado, but here property taxes are so freaking high that this is so hard to cash flow off of multiple properties in this area. And I feel like if you can get land and find different ways to just maximize your usage out of it, that is the smartest, efficient way to go from like a time perspective, a money perspective. So let's get into this. I know that when it comes to land hacking, you have three points to cover. So should we just mm-hmm. knock these out one by one?
1: Yes. And my biggest approach to land hacking is like you said, when it comes to one managing multiple stays across different states or different areas, you can really start to buy up your time. And we're not in this for that. We're all doing this to really gain that time freedom. So one thing I've really noticed in the last few months is the luxury of time that we have because multiple stays we have are on one property. So think of your logistics that you have you have your same cleaning team, maintenance team. If you have snow removal, it just keeps things a lot easier on the hosting end. So if you're a host or want to be a host, think of it in that way too, that imagine if you could make the same amount of income or revenue with one piece of property, multiple stays versus owning across four hours of different regions. So think of the logistics and how friendly that is for you. When it comes to land hacking, which this is kind of a term that I buy off of Kai Andrews. So if anyone's also interested in land hacking, check him out on YouTube. He is a big land hacker as well. And it's just a great term that defines what it really is, is hacking the land to where you're putting multiple income sources on one property. So I'll give you guys some examples. Let's say you have your primary residence or a traditional home. A example of land hacking could be putting a glamping structure, an airstream, a TP a year on the property. So now you have two different structures, two sources of income on one property. That's a more traditional version of land hacking that we all think of, most likely. Another version, which we're really gonna, I think, see come to fruition in the next few years, is the term of land hacking, where let's say you have a typical home, or maybe you have, you know, like little tiny homes or cabins, but you're really playing into the agriculture benefit, which agriculture can be a huge. It depends on your state, so don't take my word for it, <laughs> but it can be a huge property tax incentive. It's very appealing for states to have agriculture zoned land or property if you can get that or agriculture residential. And this would be an example, which I think someone who's going to do it really well in Utah, Utah Ballerina Farms, I think on TikTok is doing, she started as a farm. She sends you, you know, your meat, local grown meat, eggs, whatever it is. And she has seen and cultivated an audience that's interested in the farming prospect. So what she's doing now, I think, well, this is what I understand from TikTok, but like this is a good example. She's going to build stays on it. So now you can come to that property and actually stay, but you're seeing land hacking in terms of farming. You can do like lavender fields for some states. I think Washington, like lavender fields falls into land, like agriculture, orchards, farming. So you're now bringing someone into the space and using your agriculture as a land hacking income. So you're making money off of per se like an orchard or farming and off that property. So if you're someone who's like really into the, you know, more grown, homegrown way of living, that could be a great way to implement that dream of yours. And then the other more appealing version of land hacking for some of you, it's not technically land hacking, but it's multiple income sources with one stay. So this could be thinking of it as like a duplex, a triplex. For example, our historic cabin we purchased does not have the land to, it's only like half an acre. So we obviously don't have a ton of expansion to build other stays on it. But what we did when we purchased it was we really strive for multiple income sources on one property because you literally can like maximize your revenue so much more. So we bought this cabin upstairs it's going to be a three bed two bath and we contemplated taking the basement and doing like a game room or a theater which to some of us unique days and short-term rentals that's like a huge incentive but we ran the numbers and we really didn't think a movie theater or game room was going to knock us up too much maybe 50 75 bucks a night just given that's not our audience we're not in this like nashville space where people are coming here to like just stay at the house the entire time. So, what we decided to do was it's technically currently an ADU. So, we're going to have a one bath, one bed studio that's going to be a separate rental. And think of a gamer might bring 50 to 75 bucks a night. But if the house is vacant, you're not making money off it. Whereas we took it as an ADU, which it was converted to be like a separate entrance already. So, it's actually going to be more expensive to make it combined. We're going to have that as probably like 150. Maybe 200 bucks a night for maybe like travel nurses, you know, people passing through where we can now make per se 400 bucks a night upstairs as a separate rental and 150 bucks downstairs. All entrances are completely separate. And that's a way that we're going to capitalize on multiple income sources without having that land expansion to go off of. But we can still capitalize on higher revenue for what that one property can bring. Sure. Sure. So
0: even with a single family home, you can just add all, like the private entrance. You don't have to be buying multifamily or duplexes to make this work. Like you could convert a garage instead of convert it to a game room or theater, like you said, mm-hmm. turn that into a
1: studio. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think actually California is probably the most original to doing this idea. I think this is like really where the version of Airbnb started was in California. So my husband mm-hmm. and I lived there out of an Airbnb for two months, and there are so many ADU garages that exist in your state, yeah. as you probably know. And I'm like, this is like the heart and soul of what Airbnb was created on. Like people converting garages, they're not using them. They realize they could make 3000 a month having their garage converted into a Airbnb or ADU. So obviously you need to consult with your county and permitting, which we can talk about. That's the biggest thing with land tacking is following all the regulations and making sure you're very careful and mindful of those but that is a huge way that you can do it is if you don't want to have tons of land and develop it and build on it i encourage you to from here on out look at all your investments as could i make another income stream and don't only think that it's with structures i think we're going to see in the space you know let's say you have chickens you could you know deliver hand picked eggs every single morning for an extra 40 bucks on the reservation you know, let's say you have an orchard or something or a garden or you're a chef and you can provide, you know, like make your own pizza kit. I think we're going to see hosting get really creative with how you can maximize your income and revenue, even if you don't have an entire other structure to offer, just being able to offer that experience and like additional incentives. And that really cultivates the experience for the guest at the end of the day.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Let's go back through these three
0: points you brought up but a little more in depth. I have some mm-hmm. follow up questions on each of them. So, with number one, here's what I think people think of most typically when you hear the term land hacking, and it's just mm-hmm. buying one piece of land and throwing a bunch of different unique stays or glam sites or whatever on it. So, in this one, I would love to ask your perspective. Like, if you have experience with this, like, what's the best way to go about this? Would you say to just like, buy a house that has a lot of acreage to it and then add on that way or buy a plot of land and then hook up the water and the power and bring the Uh utilities to it like there's so many different ways you could go here what would be your approach
1: yeah so i'll give you two different options and pros and cons and i'll give you the way that we've done it and how it's worked for us so i do think you would have you have to also think when you're building these days like time time is money so you know you can't put a house up in a month (laughs) And I think that's the biggest thing that we learn in this strategy approach, which it has paid off very profitable for us. But like this renovation we're doing, it's taking eight months. A lot of hosts would see that as like not worth investing in because they can't be live in 30 days. And I think we really need to switch that approach. I think that's where the turnkey properties are just like not going to survive with that approach and just throwing furniture and slapping some paint on. It's just not going to live forever. But... You could, and it would be an incentive in terms of time, if you could find a house that is already up in the zoning and permitting and regulations are going to let you do another structure, whether it's an ADU, which is usually a thousand square feet, or maybe glamping is allowed or a tiny home. If you can already find a home that's allowing all of those things and you have the ability to expand, you can start that income right away, which is super helpful. Or you could live in the property and actually be on site and help, you know, build it and bring it up to speed if you want to do multiple structures. So there's definitely huge leverage where if you can find land that has something already on it, even like a little tiny cabin, like that could be your tiny glamping. And then you could build the bigger house or vice versa. There's definitely incentive with timeline capital, but you're obviously going to be buying a traditional home, probably going to cost more than raw land would. But you could get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage on it maybe a little bit easier because you obviously cannot just get a mortgage on raw land. It's not an incentive for a bank. So that is a great option if you're someone who's like, I'm just going to get into this. I'm not familiar with the building, like industry, construction, having a team. That's all very intimidating or new to you. That could be a great approach to be able to set yourself up for success. An example of what we did, and my husband is a huge visionary, so I'll credit him to that one. He saw the vision with just raw land. It was 35 acres. There was nothing on it. There was a water table. So we knew a well could be drilled. There was power nearby, but it was not pulled to the property. So that's something people don't realize is when it comes to land. <laughs> it's not will create equal. Utilities do cost a hefty penny, depending how far they are from you and how far you're going to have to go down to get water or if you're on sewer, septic, what it can look like. So he did pull the utilities in. So a well, you know, it could be 25000 to get a well. Power is usually the most expensive, but also water can be expensive depending where you are in the country. But we always say power is probably the number one because you can't drill a well if you don't have power. How are you going to get the water? So it's like that's kind of like your first stop is what does power look like? Okay. He brought all utilities there. The first structure was a gramping property. For about 40000 in, it was a yurt, which this is a nicer yurt, so it's, it's 40000 I think you could do this for like twenty, but maybe not in these days. And then that went up first, and then the actual like more single-family home went up. And with that, it was kind of holding the appreciation and equity with that single-family home. So some people ask, you know, with glamping stays and properties, you can't get that equ- equity and appreciation. Yeah. But with a more traditional family home on the property, you can. So that property now has two stays. It actually does have permitting for an ADU, which then we will max out this property. It can't do another property or structure, which this is where even if you're buying 35 acres, it doesn't mean you can have 35 structures on every acre. It's absolutely dependent on the county zoning regulations, what they allow. So we can do another ADU. And I think that's our next plan is to, well, We'll see. We've been like contemplating this for a while, so we'll see if it goes through. But we do want to maximize that property and just get that ADU up, and then be kind of like, okay, this is maxed out. We can't do anything else with these two structures and developing them. It took probably two and a half years over time. But obviously, the glamping was up first, so you could have started income there, where you live in it, and then get the family home up. But by doing so, you know we're all in for let's say four hundred thirty thousand. The property is now valued at $1.4 million, And that's really due to a lot of sweat equity that was put in and time. And for example, our neighbor up the mountains, so he's not really a neighbor, but he's on the mountain. <laughs> so he's the closest. He bought at $1.5 million, turned it into an Airbnb last year. He's not really our direct competition, but he's there, you know, close by for sure. But think of his expenses buying at $1.5 for a 30-year yeah. fixed rate. He's probably, I would say like, 12 to 15,000 a month, just given like short term expenses and then his mortgage. Right. And our expenses are about 2,100 plus, give or take, let's say 3,000 at the end of the day for big months. And think of what we can walk away with revenue and profit and what they have to walk away with. So that's where you really see your profit and reward towards the end when you go live. But a lot of people want to see that instant satisfaction, and they don't want to do the work. To get to that stay and get that property live. But that's where we've seen, you know, 40 to 80% cash on cash returns is usually what we see with our properties. And I really don't believe you can see that super easily with turnkey properties that you're just buying, putting furniture up. So, right. Right. I think you're spot on. That is truly where I think if, if your
0: goal is like gaining equity in a property, you have to do a fixer upper. You cannot get Mm -hmm. those numbers With a turnkey place. I mean, it could cash flow really well, but if you're trying to add value, you have to get a fixer upper and be willing to build or strip something Mm -hmm. down and start over from scratch. Um, But I really like what you touched on with how you can mix strategies because I know for me, you know, and I've been talking about this forever, I would love to buy a piece of land and park like 10 Airstreams on Mm -hmm. it and do a little Airstream Village. My one concern with that is the like appreciation. Like I do. Yeah, I see. I see both. Like, I see the value in how much more cash flow you get out of unique stays, but I also am doing this for the long term and like wanting that retirement plan. And so I'm kind of like, ooh, do I want to spend time doing all of this and not have a structure, like an actual home, Mm -hmm. you know, that can't appreciate over time? So I like that you're kind of blending. Like, you can still build a house and in the back put different properties and different experiences too. On that note, are you making... So you have on this one piece of land, you have the year, you have an ADU, and a house is going up. Did I get that We have the
1: house. So with our county and regulations, which is where you guys have to look at the stuff before you buy, before you invest, please take a look at all these things. We have a 1,500 square foot home, and that is like the primary home on the property. Okay. So what's interesting in our zoning and what we can do, and this is just an example for you guys to like look into where you are. That home can be 1,500 square feet or 6,000 square feet. They don't care. It's the primary home on the property. Okay. But our ADU can only be 1,000 square feet. So we don't have an ADU because the house is at 1,500. So the ADU would be an additional build that we will do. Once we finish this demo renovation that we're yeah. on path with, we're contemplating just locking in all of our guys for next summer because construction and team and stuff is a huge portion of all of this. And that would be a 1,000 square foot. We're maxed at that. But what's interesting is in the long term, if we wanted with this 1,500 square foot home, we could expand that to like 4,000 square feet. So you are not capped at square footage with that primary home. So if we wanted to, we could take that out of commission for eight months and literally like double the house if we wanted or do a huge expansion. I haven't decided if that's an emotional or a business decision because it would make the house, you know, a lot bigger. We can add amenities, game room and whatnot, but you're taking something on a commission for eight to 12 months. So is that gonna be worth it in the long run? Obviously you'll, you know, build equity and appreciation just by expanding the home like that. So that's an example of you have to be aware of what your county is going to allow. And this is also dependent on your zoning. So, you know, because we're zoned unincorporated, we're treated different than incorporated home in town. And that's where I always encourage anyone I work with and my students to take a look at what you're going to be zoned before you invest, because unincorporated can be really in your favor. And in some places, it might not matter at all. And when I say unincorporated, that means our county does have permit and regulations for short-term rentals. But because we are unincorporated and where we fall into the zoning map, we don't fall within regulation. So we don't have to have a permit. We don't have to pay them. We don't have to have a number. We just kind of like in our own world over there. And that's, you know, great because that keeps our business more in our control. Obviously, if they changed their rules about how they treat unincorporated, we could be affected. But mm-hmm. at least that's us taking some of our control back. And our most recent investment is also unincorporated. And that was very strategic that we purchased that in unincorporated because we still have that control. So that's A little bit about that property and to give some context, which this is something I've been talking a lot about with my mentorship students and some others in the industry, because people have that fear of glamping and how is it going to hold its value and appreciation? Yes, the bank may not see land and these unique temporary stays on them, super valuable. But I do think we're going to see a lot of growth in the next five to 10 years of people selling these properties as businesses. So if you can prove you know, what this business is going to cost to invest in, what it's going to bring in, what that return is going to look like. I think now in the future, it's no better time than to hop on that bandwagon of getting that appreciation and equity with the business model and selling it as a short-term rental business, almost kind of like a boutique compound, <laughs> you could yeah. say. And you're not necessarily going to have investors looking at it as like the same primary home equity and appreciation grab. And I actually have a student who, when she came to me, her primary goal was for the next five years to build a short-term rental portfolio that she can sell as like a package deal to someone. And I was like, wow, you are so on, like so ahead to be thinking in that way that she is literally building her portfolio in terms of how can I sell this as a complete business and hand it over to someone. So I'm not going to say like we're seeing, I can't speak for that for sure, but I do think we're going to see a lot of growth there, where if you can prove those financial numbers for your properties, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to have a primary stay on it to hold that value. That is really cool. Do you know,
0: maybe I should have her on as a guest. I'm curious what the thought process is there. When she says like in five years, she wants to sell it. Is it more like she's waiting to hit like a monetary goal? Like we're not selling Mm -hmm. till we can get this many millions? Or is it more just like, Five years is when we're exiting. I'm going to be over it. And whatever number we're Mm -hmm. at, we'll get to.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. She's a student of mine. She does long term rentals. She's starting to like convert or dabble into short term. I think if I were to ask her, just knowing like where she's at, it's more of like once the portfolio is going to be valued at this much, we're going to offload it. I don't think it's always fair to put a timeline to glamping in unique stays because, you know, if you're building a treehouse, like you are literally starting with raw land and it could take you two months, or it could take you a year and a half to do. So I think it's a little unfair, and this is to anyone who's in the unique space, because I can relate to this, that it's like, you know, you see people just buying turnkey properties, like I scale three or four a year, and I'm at like a portfolio of 10. And we, because of the strategy we choose with unique stays, we have to scale faster and more, str- I mean, slower and more strategic. We can't be picking up these I mean we just don't have the manpower honestly to like be building and managing builds and across the country so we really have to be strategic of what we do choose to spend our time on like I said this renovation is a six to eight month project like that's our scaling for this year is this project and then we will go to the next one so it's not for everyone if you're trying to scale as fast as possible you're gonna have to buy these unique stays that are already up are already priced at a pretty high amount because the sweat equity was put in by that person selling. So that's something <laughs> to keep in mind. So when she yeah. says 5 years, you know, yeah. it could take longer to actually get something worth millions for her to sell. But she's 100% building this business with the intent that she's not going to keep it for the long term. Very cool. But I like I like what you just said, yeah, like the scalability.
0: If you are just trying to add a bunch of properties then probably unique stays is not the way to go. Uh, which is funny because I think people think that this is the cheaper way to get started like oh okay I could just buy like 10 yurts for 10 grand each like perfect but yeah there's so much prep work to get the land ready and get this all prepared and everything and set these up but to your like from your example you guys have put over a million dollars of value into Mm -hmm. one property so I think it's okay to take things slowly it's and not like spread yourself too thin with multiple properties, you can still get insane numbers off of one just by taking more time with it and being Uh more intentional. Last question I'll ask you before we move on to the agricultural piece is what's your vision? I know that so you might expand on the house, you might add the ADU, and then you've got the yurt there. Uh The way that you see land hacking, at least for you personally, do you like the properties or the structures to all work with each other? Like, are they close Uh enough to where people could book them as a group stay? Or are you really trying to separate them? Like these are three individual stays and you're not going to interact with anyone else on the property?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think we see both approaches as a great way to implement into your strategy. I think the biggest thing is you need to know your market clientele and demographic. So for example, one of our properties, which honestly the house and the year are closer than we would love knowing that we have 30 acres. It's like, the fact that you can even see them, it's like, oh my gosh, why, you know, we could have put this one like 10 acres over, Mm -hmm. but that's where utilities come into play. So to pull power 10 more acres is a costly decision. So really the placement of the two currently on one property was decided by power and water and how much utilities we could pull. With this property, what's cool is the house isn't super crazy large Like you can't fit, you know, 15 people. So what we can do is the house fits six people, the year can fit four, we can host to 10 and still have an interactive experience between two and you kind of get two experiences. Sometimes the kids like to go in the year or whatnot, and the parents are in the house. So that's something where, we, you know, kind of market it to your benefit in terms okay. of like, if you can't put something super far away, maybe you play that into your marketing strategy of who you host. We've had a lot of guests that come just for the house and then then ask like, oh, can I see like pictures of the listing of the year? I'd love to rent it next summer. So definitely it piques interest just because it's a round shape and it's very weird looking from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think if you are someone who's doing, you know, very like remote couples retreat, like honeymoon people are going to be your clientele or like road trippers coming through, maybe you really want to cultivate that more unique experience and like keep it kind of solo for them. The biggest thing that I've learned with clamping is set the expectations before they arrive there. So, in the very beginning, I was like, you know, this is for any host in any type of structure, whatever you're hosting. Like, your guest does not know everything you know, and you need to get that across to them. So, I learned early on, I was just like, you know, it's a year. People are like, it's kind of obvious. Like, it's not an actual home. It doesn't have like four walls. And then I got like a review that was like, oh, it doesn't have a TV. And I was like, a TV. I'm like, it's a <laughs> yurt. Like what? And then I got another review that was like, oh, just so you know, it doesn't have AC. And I'm just like, okay, obviously as a host, I'm not doing my job at like getting this across that like, this is a yurt. Um, oh gosh. AC is not going to be there. Yeah. So that's when <laughs> I changed my marketing that I was like, we are not for everyone. And in the beginning, you know, I was a really early on host thinking like, I want to host to anyone and everyone and this property is great. Now I'm like, I actually don't even have instant bookings on for the year currently because it's never, it hasn't really burned me per se to not have it, even though a lot of people would say like instant bookings, you have to have it on, blah, blah, blah. Other listings do, but for the year, it's just like there just has to be some things that I cross spaces with before they book. And it burned me one or two times to have instant booking on. And right. I, it's a very, it's a seasonal property. So it really just is, It's been just more enjoyable for everyone to have them cross things with me before. I also say, like, make sure you read this entire listing before booking so that they can be aware of like weather, temperature, it's going to be pretty similar to what it is outside. So set your expectations. If they're not going to feel super remote and there's going to be a nearby dome a mile, like half a mile away, make sure you tell them like there's multiple structures on the property, you know just so yeah. you know, or if it's a community bathroom or a community space or hot tub or something, just set that expectation so they can be aware. And I think you'll have a more enjoyable hosting experience right. and guest experience overall. And it also, like I said, can just depend on like your land. Like our land is super, it's on a mountain. Like it has a lot of elevation. So to actually excavate and put something like down the road completely on its own path, would cost like hundreds of thousands to do. And that's just not worth it when you can just make sure that you appeal to guests that don't mind that. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So let's move on
0: to point number two, the agricultural piece. This is so cool. And I mean, like the lavender fields and everything you talked about and farming, how does this work exactly? Like, what would you say is, how how do you make money off of this land hack strategy? Is it purely from like, you need to buy pigs and become like a like start selling bacon like like honestly like what is this because i'm not cut mm-hmm. out for that life like i'm not going <laughs> to butchering animals but if it's like plant a lavender field and you mm-hmm. get like a government like subsidy do i actually have to go farm the lavender and like bring this to a farmer's market and sell it like i i don't want to do work like that like what is what is the strategy here
1: yeah so it's going to depend on each state actually which is why it's so hard to and this is anything with short rentals, you know like when people ask us about regulations It's not just statewide, but the regulation is it's down to the county, the city, and that's going to be the same thing with this approach. There are two angles. And I personally, we don't have a property that is like plain. Well, our one property is zoned agriculture residential. So we benefit on property taxes with that. But it's not because we have our own farmer field. We have sheep that like migrate every summer through the mountain. And because our property is on the mountain, we are contributing to that. So that's, I guess, kind of like a loophole of, like, we still benefit from agriculture. Our property taxes are probably, like, five times less than they would be if we were just residential. Okay. My husband, I don't know if that was, like, a huge play when he purchased the land, per se, but it's something that we definitely keep an eye on every year. The city asks us, like, do they still use this property for agriculture? You know, they want those property taxes, so they would love for them to stop doing that, but we still have, like, hundreds of sheep that run through the road sometimes, so... That is happening. Is this this
0: something that you had to apply for or bring to their attention or automatically when you got this property, it was like the government knew that sheep roamed through here. Okay.
1: Yep. So it was the property, every part, like every ranch, because 35 acres is considered a ranch in Colorado, on the mountain is agriculture residential. So everyone's benefiting from these property taxes. It's a great just kind of loophole for what we all get to own in and have a part of. But I know some who let's say, I think this is in Washington. They have a primary residence already on the property. So they're trying to step into land hacking. And the only way they can do it legally with the county is by implementing like a lavender field and an orchard. So they're planting that orchard. It didn't come with the property. They had the house. Now they're doing the opposite. Okay. And I believe, I don't know a hundred percent on this one specific situation, how they're monetizing that if it is playing into their short-term rental aspect or if they're just playing into the agriculture zoning aspect of it but because of that state they deem it as like you can have both of these on one structure and benefit whether it's tax-wise or government-wise or income and then there's also people that are doing like you said like farming or they have chickens or any sort of agriculture but it's also going to depend on the city and county of like what is agriculture to them like Do you have to have a five-acre farm? Do you have to have half an acre? Do you have to have a certain amount of animals? Like, what does that look like? And this isn't my expertise, but I do have a student that Natalie actually, she's probably listening to this as well. She came from the podcast and she has a farm in Canada. So she has that agriculture benefit and she's going to be capitalizing on the short-term aspect of building the unique stays. So she's kind of starting the opposite way where she doesn't have the primary residences or the homes she's gonna be putting them on. And she is gonna really play into that farming aspect. But like you said, not, not everyone wants to be a homesteader or butchering or delivering eggs. But her and I were brainstorming the other day. You know, She's like, I can hand deliver eggs every morning. We can stock their freezer with beef and local meats and everything. And I was saying, instead of us Marketing this as like if you'd like to stay with us and get meat or chickens or eggs or whatever, you know, add it onto this, I was like, no, we market this as like this is the entire experience and package at this price. If you're not interested in getting local food or delivered to you, you know, we can discount it or have your stay at this price. But I was like, we don't leave them to choose this. you leave it to them to feel like fomo for missing out on, that choosing it because I was like, people you know, the experience better than the guest does before they get there. So how are they supposed to know that they should sign up to get local meat delivered or, you know, get an hour on the farm or play with alpacas or something? I was like, we need to set that, that that is the experience. And if they don't do it, they're missing out rather than this is coming to the property. If you want, it's an extra add on. I was like, no, 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 we have to market it the other way. Because you're going to make them feel like that's like what they're getting is the entire experience, not just the stay. So, that's I think we're so going to smart, yeah. yeah.
0: And that's and that's like really bringing it back full circle because you know we're kind of talking about like oh, adding this agricultural piece for like some tax benefits or as another in yeah. income stream. But if this whole thing is predicated on these unique stays and experience like that, having the chickens and bringing those eggs to your guest front door, like that's what makes this full circle and. That's
1: so smart. Yeah, it should go. It's going to be a really exciting project. I'm so excited to do the work with her. Yeah. Hi Margot, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. I was like, I could go on and on and just like, there's so much potential where to some of us, you know, we see just like agriculture land is like wasteland in this country. And I think if you can commercialize it in some way, there's going to be a huge benefit in terms of short-term rental. And obviously- You have to play this into your strategy. Like she's more of a hands on host. She's local. She wants to play into this experience where we are remote hosts, we aren't local. So we would technically have to think of like bringing on a full time team member or team members to do this experience, which I'm sure we'll probably see that grow in this industry as well as just like caretakers for properties. But she's going to have a really cool project. I think we're going to see a lot of growth there. But it's just, there's so much you can do if you are aware of the regulations in the county. She actually specifically, her county is like wanting to work with her on like a tourism, like they want this tourism. So all these people telling us we're like ruining housing. Her city is partnering with her in terms of like, what can we do? How can we make sure this is effectively done for you? Because they really need tourism. And if you think about it, she could become like the hotel or boutique hotel in her city for hosting. And it's not going to be that hotel experience. It's going to be very farm to table. Yeah, that's so cool. So so basically with the agricultural piece, it's
0: hard to give advice here because you just have to look at your state and county regulation. So for some of them, they're going to only classify you as certain zoning if you have enough land or if you're planting the right kind of things. And yep. they might have different stipulations on like what's happening with that. If If you have an orchard, do you actually have to like Pick the apples and like bring them to a market, or is just having the trees there enough Mm -hmm. of like an environmental or like carbon offset that they're okay with that? So, this is really just an area that like you kind of have to check what your area cares about.
1: Yeah, it's hard to give like complete straight advice on this because it is so dependent on the city and county. I'm pretty sure the property in Washington I was talking about, he's just doing lavender fields to like get that agriculture. Like, I don't think he's doing anything (laughs) with them. Maybe they're there to enjoy. But in his county and city and state, he was able to just kind of play into that. And that was the easiest route was to go with like a lavender field. And that county calls it agriculture with that. So yeah, it's definitely something you want to, if you already own the land, look into what that zoning and land that you already own is falling into. And if you don't, make sure you, you know, ask these questions to your county, run these check boxes before you invest. If you see this in your horizon to benefit on agriculture, because it is a huge play. But I, I personally like can't, you know, I don't have our own experience right. in this. I think we will explore this route down the road, but it's just not something I can like hundred percent advise on because I don't do it at the moment, mainly because we are remote hosts. And like that to me, a lot of this plays into a personal hosting experience, but if a lavender field or an orchard does the job, you don't have to be there to like man that per se. Sure. Okay. So, okay, Cool. Okay, cool. All right. And then that'll bring us to our last
0: point of this episode. But let's talk about option three for land hacking, where you said you don't have to have multiple acres of land. You can just like work with a duplex or add on mm-hmm. an ADU or separate something and make like a private stay. Uh, how this, this is probably the most accessible. I think for most people yeah. listening, this is probably the most approachable way to do it. You don't have to have tons of land. How are you personally how would you advise somebody to make this calculation? Like if somebody has a four or five bedroom home, how would Mm -hmm. you advise them to be like, is it worth cutting out one or two of those bedrooms to make a separate stay and Mm -hmm. have two streams of income? Or are you cutting too much into the potential of having a five bedroom home? Like how would you run those numbers?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I actually had to like run the numbers. (laughs) This is post-purchase. So I was like, there's a call we're going to make. Like we're either going to put a hole through the floor and make stairs to connect, you know, the basement to the house and make it a larger home, or we're going to keep it separate. And what I did was to, in our market, I analyzed what does a three-bed, two-bath home make? And, you know, what's that average nightly rate? It was around, you know, if you do it right, because we're in this market currently. So we actually purchased in the same market, which was a really strategic and logistical decision on our ends. Our properties take. A lot of snow removal because they're in the mountains. (laughs) So when we went up there in January this past winter, we were like, we could not have another one of these in Utah and like, and still be remote hosts that are buying that time freedom. So we actually decided our next investment had to be within an hour range of our current ones. And this is solely because this property at 9,000 feet is a really unique property to keep open it's worth it to keep open. I don't think everyone experiences this. So take this at your own, you know, discretion. But it just for us was like logistically, like we have machinery, skid steers, plow trucks, team, like a lot of manpower that if we could keep things within a region, there was a lot of logistics that would be favorable for us. So Mm -hmm. we purchased in a current market. I don't think we're direct competitors to ourselves. So that was something I looked at was, are we just buying another house in town that's competing with our other house in town? They're absolutely different experiences completely. I actually think this one will top our other one, which is going to be insane if it does. But given the interest we've had, the location, I think it's going to be on track. My husband's like, I'm telling you, it's going to beat it. (laughs) That's right. But something that you want to do, I ran the numbers for a three bed, two bath, and then I ran the numbers for, let's say, a four-bed, three bath. And truthfully, they didn't look that much different. If you do it right, I can charge four to five hundred, six hundred a night. And I can charge that regardless of three bed, two bath, or four bed, one, four bed, three bath. That was the only difference was this basement wasn't super big to add a ton okay. of bedrooms on. So if you are debating that, my two cents would be run the numbers on the smaller side, if you do take two bedrooms away or whatnot, and are you really lowering into that bracket of lower nightly rate? For example, when you go from like a one bed, one bath or a two bed, one bath in our market, you're kind of capped at like, you really can't charge more than 300 if that might be your top dollar, just because it's small space, not a ton of guests. So I kind of knew that we were going to be maxed at like a one bed, one bath at like 200, 250 a night. But that's the play is like high turnover and Mm -hmm. stays and, you know, one or two people and having that game room or that extra bedroom and bathroom really did not bump that nightly rate for us. And that was the biggest thing was I know the occupancy. I know what it's probably going to be. And that's kind of what I would start with in terms of numbers is, is there a big difference? That average nightly rate is one of the most important numbers that we look at. And when we reinvest back into our properties, it's solely with the intent of how do we bump that nightly rate. Mm-hmm. So, one of our other properties, we put thirty-five thousand back into it, and we bumped our nightly rate from like three hundred to four hundred a night to four to six hundred a night. And by doing so, you know we two to four times our revenue every month yeah. because we reinvested back into it. So, that average nightly rate is very important, you guys. So, take a look at it when you're running these numbers.
0: What were those changes on that property that you did when you reinvested yeah. the 35,000?
1: Yeah, it's so crazy because there's like no denying that it was solely really these changes that made the difference. Like, you know, it's like the property is still in the same location, it still has the same view. It still looks pretty similar on the outside and everything. We decided to we obviously invested in a hot tub, which something that I think people talk about a lot in short-term rentals is phases, and it's very realistic that properties will be in phases. So don't be discouraged if you go live and you don't have every amenity that you want. Sometimes you have to make some of that profit and proceeds back before you can keep going. Some of us don't, but you're the lucky ones, I guess. So we put a hot tub into it because of high elevation. It was like a $11,000 hot tub because it needs to be insulated if we lose power. And then we actually put $25,000 into all updated furnishings and design. And that was a month overhaul probably like we did like two and a half weeks of doing that and by doing so our nightly rate bumped like 100 to 200 bucks a night Wow! so that paid for itself and like yeah in like (laughs) the first let's say five months or so we literally like i looked at numbers from the year prior and every month has like doubled minimum since and there's really you know everyone's saying airbnb's dying mark people aren't traveling as much it's like okay well if This must have just been based on what those two investments were because we're seeing way different numbers.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool.
1: Okay, I think that we've covered everything unless there's like any
0: final points you want to give us on this. And again, I know that this episode, we didn't dive too much into the actual like STR and different types of, or sorry, into unique stays and the different types Mm -hmm. of stuff out there. So go back and listen to episode 13 (laughs) if you want to hear Zoe's take on all of that. But is there any last things you want to leave us with on this land hacking piece? I think this is super interesting.
1: I would just give you guys and anyone who's wanting to do this, I know there's probably more of you guys than I may realize that are wanting to do into land hacking in unique stays. My biggest motivation for you, X, would be to like, don't run from it. And sometimes you just have to dive in, even though it's a really new world. There's not a ton of people talking about it. So obviously, you know, if you have questions, I'd love to help you out. But you're not gonna know until you do it. Like some things you're just gonna learn by actually getting in your, you know, get your hands wet and get everything a little crazy because it's gonna be a journey, but it's really worth it. And I think the industry's going this way. So if you really do have that vision, that's my biggest thing is if you have a vision, you can create it and build it. And Airbnb will support it. Like that OMG category they want to see these days. So don't run from it. Just be realistic that you know, you have to have a budget. You're going to have to do some manpower in terms of managing some guys or teams. And it is worth it. You'll learn a lot. If you ever want to build your own house, you'll be an expert at it. It only takes one one yes. build to be an expert. Yes. It does. Um, thank I you,
0: Zoe, so much for all of this. And then where can people connect with you? I'll link everything below. But is Instagram and TikTok the best way to reach you?
1: Yeah. Instagram, TikTok, send me a message if you guys are interested in this. I try to share a lot of our before we go live (laughs) journeys, because there's a lot that can happen. So I try to be really transparent with you guys on those socials of just where we're at, the things that we go through, the bids that we have to negotiate. Yeah. And I do have a unique stay mentorship as well. So if you really do feel like this is something you're wanting to dive into and you don't want to make the mistakes that we've made, that's a good place to also work with me. But yeah, follow me on socials and DM me your guys' stories. I'll add one more thing on that note. Thank you, Zoe. But the thing
0: of sharing the before process, I'm so upset. I cannot remember the name of this account right now, but there's this cabin I follow that they just built from the ground up. And I think they're about to launch like this month. And they have over a million TikTok followers already Mm -hmm. and like 800,000 on Instagram from I think a year long build. And so when they launch, they already have a full wait list. And so Mm -hmm. that's another reason too. I know we talked about like, being very slow and intentional with the growth of these, don't look at that necessarily as a negative. Like, oh, I don't have this turnkey place that I can get up and running in 30 days. That account, and again, I'm so bummed I can't remember it. If, I, if it comes to me by the time this episode comes out, it'll be in the show notes. But mm-hmm. it's just so brilliant to document the experience of this. And that's another strategy mm-hmm. of getting people invested in the journey. And if you can like post polls as you're doing this like hey guys should we put the hot tub like facing sunrise side or sunset side like get get involvement and engagement from people as you're doing this and i think that there's definitely a way to view the build process as a positive and still be building your audience before you've even launched so yeah, yeah you're always sharing the behind the scenes of things literally like your husband in the freaking like snow plow and i'm just
1: like I don't know what's going on over there, but I love it and I'm engaged, so. <laughs> yeah, we are remote hosts, but when we are there, we are very hands-on because the properties take a lot, which I think is something my husband always says this, like, I just wish some of these people that are trying to do short-term rentals and never think about it could see this, like, yeah, you know, we spend nine hours at the property day, like, picking up twigs and arborists, and sometimes it does take that, and I think that's the beauty of the business is you get to plug in and you get to plug out when you want. But yeah, there's actually a good... I don't know if this is when you're thinking of, probably not, but Pacific Bin, I think it is on Instagram. He -hmm. did a really cool storage container in the Pacific Northwest. And before he went live, he was at a million dollars on Instagram. And like you said, it's like, I do think there's something to be said about social, like how many of those are actual visitors and how many of those are just, you know, watching from afar and get the inspiration and stuff. But regardless, the PR that you're getting, and I think Christy Wolf also, who's done like the potato in Idaho the lookout towers she is a great example of that that she has used a lot of organic pr for her stays to i think she has a 420 day book out timeline Mm -hmm. and that's absolutely insane like if you can really capitalize on that journey like you said you can be full for the first two years and not even have to really be listed yeah yeah amazing
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. All the ways to connect with you will be below. And until next time, until you're back on for guest appearance number three, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, we have another case of ridiculous rules left by a host. And they put this on this horribly obnoxious Word document where they use like 10 different fonts, a different font for each rule and different colors. And I wish you guys could see what this picture of this sign looks like. Maybe I'll post it on my Instagram stories today. So you can go look, it is so obnoxious, but let's go through and read these lovely rules that this host put together that for some reason they think is completely reasonable to leave for somebody. So kitchen rules, number one, one dish and one glass per meal. What? Come on, people. I, I personally need three glasses at a minimum. I am one of those people who at all times has a water glass, a, a like seltzer, like a LaCroix or an Olipop, something like that, and then an iced coffee. At all times, I need three beverages. So, no, I'm, I'm not adhering to this one dish and one glass per meal rule. Rule number two, all dishes and glasses must be cleaned by hand. And under this, they put a note that says, we have had some issues in the past with non-compliancy. But now, now listen to this, okay? Rule number three is no dishwasher use during neighborhood quiet hours. Hold on a second. You just said all dishes and glasses must be cleaned by hand. And now you're saying no dishwasher use during neighborhood quiet hours? So I can use the dishwasher during non-neighborhood quiet hours, but I can't use the dishwasher because I thought, according to rule number two, all dishes and glasses are to be cleaned by hand. Okay, make it make sense. Underneath rule number three, where they say no dishwasher use during neighborhood quiet hours, they put a note that says, we've had numerous complaints about the noise and have respected the neighborhood quiet hours by not using major electronics. The neighborhood quiet hours are 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., so the middle of the day middle of the day okay what why who's like why can't you that's like the ideal time to run the dishwasher if it's loud okay 1 p.m to 2 30 p.m and 10 p.m to 9 30 a.m 9 30 9 30. that is so late in the day you guys okay so anyway that just makes no sense like we said why are you able to use the dishwasher during non-quiet hours However, rule two says they all need to be cleaned by hand, okay? Rule number four, please do not... S- <laughs> what? This has to be a troll. This has to be a fake... This can be real. Rule number four, please do not bend our spoons. Spoons are meant to be used as utensils only. What were people using spoons for? What else were they doing with your spoons that you had to make this rule? Like digging, digging trenches in the backyard? What else were people using spoons for that they were all ending up bent? I kind of don't want to know the answer to that. Rule number five. For any advanced cutlery serving tray needs or for any minor appliance fixes or instructions, please contact... and then they put a number. I don't understand. I, 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 I don't know what that means. For any advanced cutlery serving tray needs or for any minor appliance fixes or instructions, please contact... and then they put a phone number. Are you saying to... In order to get a knife, is that considered advanced cutlery? In order to be provided a knife, they need to call the same number that they would call for something being broken. That is how we're treating our guests when it comes to knife usage. What are you running a background check on them before they can get a knife? Are you kidding me? Number six, the tap water is okay. And then underneath, they put a note that says, drink at your own risk. So is it okay or are we drinking at our own risk? What kind of rule is this? Why is that even a rule? That's more just a note or information. I don't understand. Okay, number seven. Do not keep any food in the refrigerator for more than 16 hours. This is for sanitary reasons. Huh? 16 hours? So uh, not even a day? Not even a day. In the morning, if you make yourself... A huge breakfast burrito at 9 a.m. and you end up not finishing all of it and decide to refrigerate it at 9 a.m. By 3 a.m., you need to go get out of bed and wake up to go move the contents out of the fridge and put it in the trash because that's 16 hours. Is that what we're saying here? You cannot leave it overnight. If you go to dinner and pick up leftovers come back with a box of leftovers and put it in your fridge at 10 p.m. when you get back from dinner and then you want to have it the next day for dinner you can't cuz 24 hours have lapsed you have to take it out of the fridge at the 16 hour mark and then what just let it sit on the counter until dinner time because that's more sanitary than keeping it in the fridge who this has to be a troll i mean this this sign is like legit you guys i'm going to post this on my instagram stories and you can go look but this sign is 100% legit like this picture of it it is printed on a piece of paper laminated sitting on the counter next to the house manual it's got it's 10 different fonts like we said every rule is in a different font like this is a completely legit sign but I I mean I have to wonder the person who made this sign do they just hate the owner that they are managing the property for and just want to screw with them like maybe the owner hasn't been paying them or something, hasn't been paying this co-host or property manager and has just been difficult to work with. And that co-host or property manager just made this to F with them. Like that's the only thing I can think of. They're just asking to get horrible reviews with this. And this can't be serious. Like nobody did this with well-meaning intentions. I feel like there is something under the surface. There's a conflict going on here and somebody's property manager is trying to screw them over that's that's what this has to be these rules are absolutely insane and with that it is now checkout time thanks for listening and i'll see you back here next week lastly as airbnb hosts we all can appreciate a good five-star review so you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me please subscribe review share and connect with me in the show notes below bye